God, I ask that you would ignite our heart with an overwhelming longing for your return. God, I ask that you would begin to shift the body of Christ to long for your coming above all else. God, would you cause us to hunger and thirst for the fullness of righteousness expressed on the earth? God, would you cause us to hunger and thirst for true justice? The fullest expression of justice and mercy and love and passion. God, we long for the fullness of you. We long to see you in fullness. We want to see you face to face. We want to see you fully expressed in what we have the capacity to understand. Jesus, fill us with longing, even now. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come. I ask you to come. Holy Spirit. God, I ask all over the room, I ask that you would cause hearts to burn. Cause hearts to burn, to ache. God, I ask that you would awaken hearts with a yearning for the second coming. In Jesus' name. If that's you, if you feel the Lord touching your heart right now, I want to ask you to stand. I want to pray for you for a minute. Jesus, all over the room. God, I ask that you would stir them. Lord, I just want to say this. If the Lord's touching these ones, He's doing it because He specifically just has something for them. Not just today, but over the next few days. I mean, the Lord has something for all of you. But the Lord's just highlighting these ones right now so the rest of us can pray. So why don't the rest of you just stretch, your hand, stretch out your hands towards them. I just want to pray for them for a minute. God, I ask that you would answer the cry of their heart. That you would give them hunger and thirst. God, those that are standing that do not hunger fully and thirst fully, God, I ask that you would transform their desires. Transform what it is they hunger for. Transform what it is they thirst for. God, that you would reform and refashion their desires to long and love, to long for and to love what you love, to delight in what you delight in. God, I ask that you would fill them even now Breathe, O breath of God, breathe on their heart. Touch them. God, I ask that you would give them eyes to see, minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome. For those of you that uh, just came in, it's good to uh, be with you. We at the House of Prayer. Uh, by the way, I just want to I just want to apologize in advance. Uh, a really dear friend of mine came to one of my sessions a couple of years ago, and she said, "Man, I was new to IHOP. I didn't know anybody, and what I could not understand was why that Asian guy was yelling at me about the end times. I could not understand, and so I get a little worked up, and so I'm apologizing in advance." No, for those of you that are that are here that just came, it is our honor, it's our glory to host you. We just love this. We've been praying for quite some time for you. As as you may have heard, we've we've prayed for each of you that register for the conference by name. We we uh, devoted most of our prayer meetings to praying for you. We just we love this. We love this. It always touches my heart when people who love Jesus 
come because they're hungry to learn about Him. I mean, historically, afternoons are the worst time to teach and preach. It's the worst. Except for this conference. There's a different kind of person that comes to this conference. And, I'll have you know, there's a different kind of person that comes to this seminar. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) Just a different kind of person that that would come hear this stuff. I love it. It's hunger, yes, but it's also a little bit of weirdness. There's just a little bizarre touch to you. And, uh, you know, if you're doing the locust and honey thing in 10 years, I'll, I'll look the other way, I promise. I'll, I'll bless you. There's a little bit of a, just a little bit of a, I'm just speaking to fellow weirdos. I just know. I know right now that this room is filled with people just like me. Just a little click to the left. <laughs> Talking about the second coming. I said this to the first group. I'll say this. How many of you just walked in? How many of you are new to this, this session? I'll say this really, ooh, more than I realize. I'll say this really quick. I wrote a book. It's good. I have notes that are helpful. It's in the bookstore. It's the only one this color, I think. So it's easy to find. If you're looking for my book, they've got like a picture of a guy and a monkey pointing at the jungle. That's how you find my book. It's a guy on a monkey pointing. Now, here's what, here's, again, click to the left. I love it. It makes me laugh. I just, oh my goodness. Out of all the, out of all the pictures they could have picked, they picked the one that just blessed my heart. I just giggled for hours. I just loved it. So, uh, so there you go. Just, just, I always like to warn people what they're getting into when they come in the room with me. So we're talking about the second coming. It is the uh, it is the greatest moment to come in human history. There will be no moment that will match the second coming of Jesus. But I want to say this just as we start: the second coming will not be a moment. The second coming will be a series of days. When we think of the first coming of Jesus, we don't think of Jesus appearing as a baby and then going back to heaven. We, we tend to think of the first coming as a three and a half year event. Well, of course, the problem is the, the first coming was a 33 and a half year event. 33 and a half years. The first 30 years matter just as much as the last three and a half, though we focus mostly on the last three and a half. The first 30 years mattered. How Jesus lived the first 30 years matters. But... It's comfortable for us to think of the second coming as a moment. Partially because of about 30 years now, yay, 100 years now of bad teaching. But um, it's, uh, well, bad teaching may be harsh. Incomplete teaching. How's that? I'll say incomplete teaching. Incomplete teaching that never really dove into the guts of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, just to name a couple passages that highlight the second coming. Isaiah 63, 1-6, just some of my favorite verses that describe the second coming. But you wouldn't pick it as a second coming verse because Jesus is on the ground. Well, I've got news for you. Isaiah 63, 1-6 is highlighted another time in the Bible. Revelation 19, 11-17. Which means this. Revelation 19, 11-17, Jesus is not in the sky flying on a horse. 
We've read that verse so many times and we've always imagined Jesus with a flying horse in the air, breaking through from heaven. But the problem is the verse that John is alluding to isn't about Jesus in the air. It's about Jesus on the ground. The second coming is a series of events that starts with Jesus in the air and ends with Jesus in Jerusalem in victory. That's the second coming. The second coming is a sequence of events that takes roughly 30 days. In other words, the second coming is a 30-day or so event. It'll be the greatest 30 days in history. They will be, they will be stunning. And again, most focus on the second coming because they think of the rapture. The second coming is where Jesus appears in the sky and we go up. That's not really the second coming. That's the first going. The first time in history that happens when the church goes up. So, so the rapture is the first going. The second coming is where Jesus actually comes. And he's not only coming to the church. He's coming to the earth. Your life is not about dying and going to heaven. Your life is about heaven coming to earth. In fullness, that's what your life is about. Heaven comes to earth. The second coming. The, uh, to me, one of the main second coming verses, that's what I want to look at in this session. And again, I just want to set the table for the second coming. This is, this is not comprehensive by any means. I said in the last session, this, uh, this set of notes, it's, it's my, uh, it's the class I teach at FSM. So I just, I want to say this, by the way, if you're coming to IHOP, if you're coming to IHOP KC, either as an intern or a student, don't buy this for yourself. Don't buy it for yourself because everyone that comes to IHOP has to take my class. And so if you take my class, you have to get this. So don't buy this, because you'll end up with two, unless you want to, and then, you know, do what you do. But don't buy it. Don't, don't buy it unless you're never coming back. <laughs> or at least, you know, to, you know, to stay. <laughs> so, the point is, the syllabus has 25 pages on the second coming. 25 pages of notes on this subject. And the 25 pages of notes just scratches the surface. I mean, I just could not span because it's 25 pages of notes for a three-hour session on the second coming. I could teach a whole semester plus on the second coming and take each one of those passages and take three hours on each and then still not exhaust the subject. There is so much about the second coming. The second coming was one of the main features of New Testament writing. Because the second coming was the ultimate pastoral tool to help us come to peace and rest and contentment in God. Whenever there was a pastoral crisis, the apostles wrote, hey, think about the second coming. You know, it's like I'm kind of grossly oversimplifying, as is my gift. But that was the essence of how they solved pastoral crises. The guy comes into the pastor's office got a real issue. I need counseling. Second coming. <laughs> oh, man. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, you guys are having a hard time because your friends are being killed, martyred by Jews that hate Jesus. Comfort one another with this. Second coming. 
like, what? It's the ultimate pastoral solution. Why is it the ultimate pastoral solution? Because the problem that you go through today feels like it'll go on forever. For Jesus, forever is a long time. I am convinced that the second coming is the beginning of the beginning of your life in God. It's the beginning of the beginning. This life will be over in a minute. We get, we get this one life to live right and choose Jesus and labor to be found as a lover, as an authentic lover of Him. And it's done. It's done in a minute. The problem that you have today will be over tomorrow, but the second coming is the first day of the rest of your life. The second coming. Actually, I think, just to, to go on a tangent for a minute, if you've ever heard me speak before, it's what I do. To go on a tangent for a minute, I believe that the second coming is the beginning of a thousand years that finish the foundation that God's going to lay to start the rest of our existence and lives with Him. In other words, the second coming happens, Jesus establishes a kingdom on the earth, transforms the earth to reflect the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, then once the earth is like heaven, in other words, His will is being done on earth like it is in heaven, once that statement is true, Jesus didn't say that to be poetic. He said it because it's going to be true. His will, Matthew 7, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And once that happens, the, the ultimate forerunner, Jesus, had, will have succeeded in his mission that he got from a guy named Adam to subdue the earth and prepare it for the coming of God. That's what Jesus will do when he comes. He will prepare the earth for the coming of his Father. It takes a thousand years under the perfect leadership of Jesus to prepare the earth for the coming of his father. That's how devastating sin is. It takes a thousand years in the perfect leadership of Jesus to make the earth ready for the father to come. Jesus will, over a thousand years, fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Get the earth ready for God to come. Once his will is being fully expressed on earth as it is in heaven, heaven comes to earth, God comes to earth, and the earth becomes a resting place for God to dwell with men forever. And I believe that it's at that point, God will look at you and go, now we can get started. The 7,000 years of history was the foundation. It was digging deep. Now let's build a skyscraper together. Think about that. That's why it was so easy for Paul to look at the guy in trouble, in pain, in crisis, and go, hey, second coming. Just think about it. Yeah, I know it's hard. I know you're, lo- you're mourning the loss of your friend, and all your finances are a mess because the, the, the Jewish guys that don't like Jesus are messing with your finances, and they want to drive you out of town. I know it's hard. Second coming, though. He is coming. It's going to be awesome after that. This is just for a minute. It'll be awesome forever. I mean like a million years. And after a million years, the second million will be better than the first. You don't believe me now, some of you, because you're awful quiet. <laughs> either, either you're staring at me, wondering what you've gotten yourself into and wondering you know, what uh, Peter Herter is doing in his end time seminar, or you're thinking, which, you know, either way, that's dangerous. So, don't think. Only agree with everything I say. 
No, I'll tell you this. I'll I'll tangentialize again. <laughs> That's not even a word. But but I'm gonna do another tangent really quick. This is my teaching philosophy. I, I say it every time I every time I teach my end times class at FSM. Almost pretty much every class I teach, I say these words. I do not want you to believe my truth. I want you to believe God's truth. All I want to do is present you Bible verses by which you go dig after God's truth yourself. You have a Holy Spirit living in you who's a jealous teacher. And He will direct your hearts into love of God and the patience of Christ. For 2 Thessalonians 3. He will direct your hearts. 1 John 2. You have a teacher living in you. And so... Feel free, and I mean this with the whole of my heart, and I say this to every one of my students, feel free to disagree with every word I say. It's not threatening to me when the guy has a question and he goes, what you said, I hate it, and it's totally off. And I'm like, sweet. Show me verses that I buy into your interpretation, I'll change my mind in a minute. I mean, let's wrestle with this together. You do not have to buy into my truth on this. The point is for you to think Mostly, though, the point is for you to... I mean, my goal, actually, when I teach outside of this context, my goal is to get the person's head hurting so much, all they can do is pray. (laughs) That's really my goal. So the person's like, ah, okay, here are the 144,000, ah. That ultimately... Because you'll read 500 commentaries and none of them will agree. Your head will hurt so bad, you'll have to pray. You'll have to actually access the Holy Spirit as teacher. It's glorious. And then we sharpen one another and we all come into truth together. We lay hold of God. That's what we want. We want to pursue God. We don't want to pursue my interpretation of the Bible. We want to know truth. So, that said, I would like you to uh, buy into everything I say right now. (laughs) No, just really don't. Threefold intercessory cry. There's three factors. There's three things that you want to understand. Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you why Jesus is coming back. It's not just serendipity. It's not just Jesus one day going, you know what? It's 3.30. Let's do it. (laughs) Sometimes God becomes so sovereign that we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, you know, whatever. (laughs) As if Jesus is suddenly going to go, you know... That guy's not ready. That guy will perish. Those nations aren't ready. That's another one. You know what? Why don't we just do it? Let's go. It's like there are actually factors in the Bible that are very clear that when these pieces are in place, when everything comes together in the plan of God, because that's the point. The point is that God is going to orchestrate his plan in such a clear, stunning way that three pieces, three streams are going to come together at the same time. And then he comes. And here's the kicker. His leadership is so amazing. His leadership is so perfect that it's not just the godly that will bring to pass these things. Ungodly man in disagreement with God will voluntarily be a piece of the puzzle. God is not a puppet master making ungodly man do what he wants. You know, Hitler, I want you to now do bad things. I feel like I need to do bad things. No, Hitler voluntarily did what he did. And yet God used the voluntary wickedness of Hitler to orchestrate the rebirth of Israel on the earth. God uses 
man's will voluntarily whether they love him or not. It's unbelievable, this subject called the end times. And so three radically different streams will come together simultaneously and trigger a a prayer. That's the stunning part. Three simultaneous streams of history will come together simultaneously and the Lord will birth a prayer and God will break into the earth. Jesus will return in response to a prayer. Now the prayer is a unified prayer. A church fully unified with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit initiates it and the church as Ephesians 2 defines it. The Ephesians 2 church in heaven and on earth will in unity with the Holy Spirit say one word. Come and God will answer and break into the earth to rescue, to save and to judge. It's amazing. God does it in context to prayer. Three factors. What are the three streams? Number one, The final rejection of the nations. It's right here in point A on the notes. The final rejection of the nations. Point two, the unified invitation of his bride. And number three, Jerusalem is surrounded by nations that want to destroy her. All three factors will be in place. The nations will finally, ultimately, and deeply with rage and bitterness say no to God. The church will be saying yes, and the Jews will be crying for help. All three things will be happening. Yes, no, and help. Those are the three streams. The intercessory cry of the end time church stirs the heart of Jesus regarding all three issues. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the centerpiece verse for the second coming. And the spirit and the bride say come. And let him who hears say come. And again, that come, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus is related to all three issues. I'll just say them one, two, three. It's it's A, B, and C. Come Lord Jesus, come judge the nations. That will be one of the aspects of our prayer. We won't won't just be saying, God, come, I'm lovesick. Though that's one of the cries of our hearts. We will say, God, come judge the nations. Secondly, we'll say, come for us. Come for your people. And then third, we'll say, Jesus, come rescue your people. Come for us. Come rescue the Jews. Come rescue Israel. Come have mercy on Zion. I want to recommend, uh, if this is a new idea to you, I'll recommend one more resource. And then I'll be done with resource recommendation. Because you don't get enough of that at these conferences. I'll just recommend one resource. If that's a new idea to you, God's zeal for Zion. I just did this fall a tape series, I think the bookstore has it, called God's Zeal for Zion. It's a study of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. The book of Zechariah. It's a study of Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 12 through 14. In three sessions, God's zeal for Zion. It's about understanding that God has zeal for a geographic location, not just a people. He has zeal for a people. He has zeal for human beings. Surpassing anything else, God has zeal for humans. 
But he also has zeal for a geographic location. He has zeal for Jerusalem. Why? Well, if I told you that I was going to give you a home in Dallas, Texas. Anybody from Dallas? It'd be a pretty sweet place to have a home, right? If I said to you, God's going to give you a home in Dallas, Texas, and that home will be the place where you and your family will live happy, prosperous, and blessed, protected forever. That place is going to be filled with the Spirit, filled with prayer, filled with joy, filled with life, filled with all the blessing of the Lord. This home is your dream home. How many of you would have zeal for that geographic location? There you go. God looks at Jerusalem and he doesn't just see atheists that hate him. He doesn't just see Muslims that that want to murder and kill under demonic influence. He doesn't just look at the problems of Jerusalem. He looks at Jerusalem and he sees his home forever. He sees the place by which and from which the whole earth will be transformed. It will be the place where he leads as king and the place where he establishes. It's in Zechariah 8. He establishes a global prayer movement, a global worship movement, and transforms the earth from Jerusalem. When he looks at Jerusalem, he sees the place at which he's going to set up shop and change everything. So he's got a little zeal for the place. And so part of his zeal to return is to come and rescue the people and the place from destruction at the hands of his enemies. His real zeal. So three prophetic cries in one power-packed verse. I mean, that verse, there's so much from that one verse. It's all three of those ideas. Come judge the nations. The prophetic cry for justice. There's a few verses here. Revelation 6.10. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? It's a cry for justice. The cry of the martyrs in the fifth seal is a cry for justice. God, how long will injustice break forth on the earth? How long will darkness dominate the earth? God, it's unjust. I want to tell you, Again, the second, the second coming, the, the Revelation 22, 17, that is the culmination. That's the apex. That's the height. The church in full unity, asking for the Lord to come do these things in fullness. But I tell you, you can start today. It's not even, I'm not going to say start practicing. You can start crying out Revelation 22, 17 today. And you can spend from today for the rest of your life crying out for justice. It's Luke 18. We don't have to wait till the fullness of sin and darkness are permeating the earth. Revelation 9. They would not repent of their sexual immorality, their sorcery, their theft, their murder. It's the height of those four issues on the earth. Murder, unlike any other time in history. Sexual immorality, unlike any time in history. Uh, Theft, unlike any other time in history. Demon worship, beyond anything the earth has ever seen unprecedented demon worship. In that atmosphere, bright and shining lamps, fiery believers will be crying out to the Lord, How long, God? How long? Come and bring justice. Come and push back the works of the enemy. Destroy and demolish his schemes. We will cry with great intensity in that day, but that cry begins today. How long, God? 
for abortion to continue. How long will will these babies die in the womb? How long will these things persist? God, come and judge. Oh, it's a terrifying cry though. The terrifying cry. We want God to come and judge today with mercy. We don't want God to come and judge today by giving the abortion doctors what they deserve. We don't want God to come and judge Saddam Hussein with what he deserves. We want God to judge with mercy today. In other words, when I cry out for justice, I'm crying out for revival. That's really what I'm crying out for today. When I cry, God, justice, what I'm really saying today is justice with mercy. God, end abortion by sending revival to our land. In other words, turn the hearts of the abortionists to love you by which you can show them mercy. Abortion will end when the desire for abortion ends when revival invades the city. That's justice. Murder ends when the spirit of a murder goes because no one wants to murder anymore. It's a side biblical principle that's not in the the notes. Men enthrone demons called principalities by repeated agreement with darkness. You want to rebuke the spirit of murder. The problem is half the city wants it there. I rebuke you, spirit of murder. The spirit of murder says, hey, that guy that just killed his wife down the road, he disagrees with you. He wants me here. I rebuke you, spirit of immorality. Hey, three quarters of the city is voting me in. You want to get rid of the spirit of immorality, get rid of immorality. Then once immorality is done, we vote Jesus in and demons flee in the name of Jesus. That's spiritual warfare. When the guy wants righteousness, not darkness, we command the demon to go and he goes. If the guy wants the demon, you can command that demon all you want. Even if it goes, ten more buddies will come and and, uh, it'll be worse for the guy when he started. We want revival. Revival is the ultimate merciful expression of justice. God, come and change hearts. Come and change lives. Bring justice and injustice by bringing light and life and truth to a city. But there's going to come a day when that cry will change. But it will change not because God changes. It will change because men will no longer respond to the gospel of God. That's when things change. One of the examples, the most, probably the most famous example is the mark of the beast. When men take the mark of the beast, they can no longer be saved, not because they have a mark, but because they no longer want to be saved. This is the example I always use. You know, it's the believer going, am I going to take the mark? And the answer is always the same, not unless you want to. To get the mark, it's like getting a passport. You have to worship and give loyalty to the man who gives the mark to get it. So if you want the mark, you'll get it. If you don't want it, you won't get it. I mean, you'll starve and die, but you won't get the mark. No, the reason I say that is because there are some believers that are afraid that they're going to trip and fall and be marked by the mark guy. They're like dodging the mark people. It's like, whoop, whoo, you almost got my hand. Whoo, just missed my head. Oh, no. No. It's Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. No, I'll never join you. <laughs> it really doesn't work that way. 
the mark is given for wholehearted loyalty to a demon. That's how the mark is given. Am I going to take the mark? I don't know. Are you going to be wholeheartedly loyal to a demon? No. There's your answer. There will come a day, though, when much of the earth will be. And they won't get saved. They, in other words, this will be the shocking response of much of the earth in the days to come. There will be great revival, but there will also be this response. Yes, I've heard the gospel. Yes, I saw the dead guy get up. Yes, I understand the implications, but I hate your God and don't want anything to do with him. And if his kingdom comes, I'll commit suicide. I hate him. I want nothing to do with him. I want nothing to do with your gospel. I hate the works of your Holy Spirit. That's going to be kind of a summarized, overgeneralized response of much of the earth. No. In other words, we imagine that when revival comes, people will be like, yeah, 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 some will. But when revival comes, many will go, no. Study, become a student of revival. When you become a student of revival, you'll find as many as say yes, many say no, and it's a deep no. They persist in their sin and become seared in their conscience and despise God by the time they're done. This is where history is going. It's not like they'll discover God for the first time and go, wow. They'll go, yeah, I see God. You know, sixth seal. It was scary, but I still hate him. In the sixth seal, the ones who are scared at God are unrepentantly bold in sin by the sixth trumpet and openly blaspheming God by the sixth bowl. They're not three depictions of one event. It's a progression of the heart into a rejection of God. I'll say it again. The sixth seal in Revelation 6, they're afraid of God. It doesn't mean they're going to turn and repent. They're just afraid. They're trembling. The sixth trumpet in Revelation 9, they're openly, boldly sinning, unrepentant. By the sixth bowl in Revelation 16, they're openly blaspheming God. Cursing his name. They hate and despise him. Though God is openly manifesting his works on the earth. It's not pretty. In that time, we will say, God, come judge. Judge by cleansing the earth of wickedness, which happens by cleansing the earth of the wicked. The wicked being those that absolutely refuse God. That say no to God. Here's a surprise that I can't develop because I got the three-minute sign about four minutes ago. But here's a little surprise for you. There will be many that don't say yes to God, but they don't say no either. Many that don't say yes, but don't say no. Why? Because in the foreknowledge of God, He knows that they will say yes. It's the God that preserved your life until you said yes. It's the God that preserved Cornelius' life until he said yes. It's the God that will find a way to save the heart of, and the life of a man even when there seems to be no way. God will preserve human beings that do not say yes to darkness but don't say yes to God either. Zechariah 14 is a great example. Zechariah 14, those who are left from among the nations, it's those that will come to Christ by the thousands upon thousands of millennium. Everyone gets saved when Jesus is on the earth. The real great harvest is not before the second coming. The real great harvest is after. It's a comprehensive 100% great harvest. And Revelation 14 talks about it. The one who's reaping the great harvest in Revelation 14 is the king on his throne. It's a throne chariot with fiery wheels, but it's a throne nonetheless.
Ezekiel 1, just for you Jesus throne freaks. Which if you studied Ezekiel 1, you'd become one too. Really quickly, come for your bride. That's the second cry. The final prophetic cry. But I want to, the reason I want to hit this point is because it seems romantic to say, come Lord Jesus, come take me, come take me away. Take me away to the apple tree. Take me away to the shade so I can sup on luscious fruits and glorious wonderments and romance. It's going to be awesome. Here's romance fully fleshed out. Romance is me being fully committed to what's on the heart of Jesus to accomplish. It's what Paul said to the Philippian church. He said, I am burning and longing to go to heaven to be with Jesus, but it is far better for me to be with you in this season as much as I'm pained because I'm committed to the plan of God. It's the same line of thinking as the Jesus who says, I long for fire to come now, but it's not the time. I want the fire that's going to cleanse the earth to come now. But I'm committed to my Father's plan. I'm paraphrasing. It's the tension of come Lord Jesus, but not yet. God wants you to live in that tension. It's a bizarre tension. Come Lord Jesus, but not yet. One more soul. Come Lord Jesus, but not yet. Save my family. That's the tension. Come, Lord Jesus, but not yet. The church is not ready. Second Peter 3, if you came today... Woo! <laughs> if you came today, half the church would burn up and the other half would fall away. Those numbers are a little exaggerated. That's 100% defeat. Don't, don't quote me on that one. That's what Peter says, though, in essence, in 2 Peter 3. He says the Lord would love to return. You know, it's the, why doesn't Jesus just go, you know what, today's a good day, let's go. It's not what he says. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that Jesus is going, I want to come. I want to return. I want to come to the earth more than you want me to come. But I promise you, you don't want me to come today. That's what 2 Peter 3 is saying. I'll say that again. Jesus is saying, I promise you, you don't want me to come today. As much as I want to... It would not be good for you if I came. Because when I come, I'm coming with fire. And that fire is a fire that cleanses disagreement. When I come, I'm coming with judgment. And that judgment is a purifying judgment that removes all who will not go with my agenda. I want to come. I love you. But I really am committed to bringing my father to the earth. And to bring my father to the earth, the earth has to be holy. And if you're not holy, you can't live on the earth. And it's not like you're not growing in holiness and growing in maturity and growing in it, but there's a lot about my plan, just quoting Jesus, paraphrasing, there's a lot in the heart of Jesus that you don't like and you don't agree with. I just want you to, I just want you to stop and think for a minute. There is a lot that's in his heart and in his plan that you don't like and you don't agree with. Paul called it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 12 and 13, the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity being the mysterious manner in which the human heart despises God and His ways. Now, all of life 
before we die as a believer is about growing in the transformation of our desires, the Beatitudes that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Most in this room do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the few that do only do so to a small degree and would confess to wanting more. The one who is fulfilled and happy and then would confess that they fully love, hunger and thirst for righteousness is a liar and demonized and needs deliverance today. There are so many warring desires in our heart, James 4, 4. There are so many things that we lust and long for that are not the kingdom of God. And God's desire is to bring us into agreement by which we fully reject the things of this world and fully long for a righteous kingdom to break in. In the way that Jesus is going to do it, it's full agreement. It's Amos 3, 3. Amos 3, 3. How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? Jesus is looking at his church going, I want to walk with you. You're asking me to come, do revival, walk with you. But the problem is, if revival came, half of you would leave in offense and bitterness. I want to come. I want to walk with you. But I would that you would agree with me first. And so the tension of come, Lord Jesus, but not yet, is the tension of I long for you to come, but the bride is not ready. God, give us time to prepare. God, I want revival to come, but not yet. Give us time to get the people ready for revival. Most want revival, but are not ready for what happens when it comes. And if we live in that tension, we have no option but to become an intercessor. But to pray. God, help us. I want you to come, but we're a mess. So clean us, help us, fix us, change us, transform us so that you can come. And of course, the Revelation twenty-two seventeen cry is the apex by which the church is ready for him to come. And the earth is ready because the earth has mostly refused him. The church has fully embraced him. And then finally, his people need to be rescued. Finally, all is in readiness for Israel to receive him the way that he always wanted to be received as the king that he is, not the king that they wanted him to be. And this is a vast subject. But it's the third piece of the puzzle. Jesus longs to come to Jerusalem as king, but he will come at an invitation. He will not come forcefully. He will come at an invitation and he will be invited as the king that he wants to be, not the king they wanted him to be. And the way that he gets from point A to point B is very intense and the subject of another day. But he will come as king, but he will not be defined by man. He will define himself, and men will either say yes or no. And what he's going to do is he's going to prepare Israel to receive him as he is. In mourning and repentance, they will receive him, but they will receive him joyfully. In the Gospels, they tried to make him the king they wanted him to be. And Jesus said he would, the the, the Gospels say that he would not go with them because he knew what was in their hearts. But when he returns, they'll receive him as he is, which they could not do in the first coming. That's the glory of his plan. A church in full agreement and Israel in full repentance. And the, and the nations of the earth in full rejection. But God is going to bring full transformation. Let's stand.